This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, reading verses four through nine. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. As the one who has sanctified us by your word, your word, which is truth. We bless you as the one who has called us to meditate on your word day and night. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would accompany our meditation on your word. That we might grow in our knowledge of you. That we might become more like the Lord Jesus Christ in whose image we have been created. We pray these things in your one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is um, the command before the command, part two. Verse five, which I read for you this morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength is what Jesus identified as the greatest commandment. The last time I was here several weeks ago, we learned that there was actually a command before the command. There was something that Jesus commanded us to do, something that was necessary to do before we could love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And that command is known in Jewish tradition as the Shema, hear, listen. Before we can love God, we must listen. We must listen with our understanding We must listen in such a way that we will grow in our knowledge of God and in our knowledge of selves. Listen, and and when God has our attention, the first thing he says to us is our name. He reminds us, first thing, of who we are as his people. He reminds us that we're no longer Jacob, but we are Israel. We're no longer deceiver, cheater, tricker. But we are those who have wrestled with God and who have prevailed, those who have overcome. We, in the language of the Apostle Paul, are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Now, we also learned, and I admitted that this was a little bit different than what we're used to hearing. We also learned that because God addresses us first... That there's a very profound sense in which the story of the Bible is about us. We're accustomed to hearing and thinking that it's not about us. That it's about God. We reflected briefly on the fact that the covenant is made up of two parties. The summary of the covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31 is, I will be your God and you will be my people. That covenant takes two. 
we reflected on the fact that creation is about us. We were created on the sixth day as the apex of God's creation. Uh, We reflected on the fact that redemption is about us. For God so loved us that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That Jesus said in John chapter 10, I have come that you might have life in all of its abundance. And I realize that that's a little bit unsettling at times because we're so accustomed to hearing and thinking that it is not about us, but that it is exclusively about God. But you'll recall that I said there's another side of the coin. And that is that while we are the people of God, there is a God whose people we are, and that the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, brings us this wonderful balance. We looked last time at just the first part of this text, just verse 6, verse 4 rather. Hear, O Israel. And this morning we're going to look at the second half. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. While it is true that it is about us, it is also true as I concluded my sermon. It's not only about us. That would be another imbalance that takes us out of a covenantal perspective. I will be your God and you will be my people. So having reflected on God's command to listen carefully with understanding and hearing our name Israel, it's now time to look at the second half of that verse. uh, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now just a note on uh, translation. I'm reading the Uh, English Standard Version, which says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. My guess is a fair number of you probably have the um, New International Version with you, and it says the exact same thing. Some of you may have a New American Standard, and it says something slightly different. It says, The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It slides an extra is in there. And I'm going to opt this morning for the ESV and the NIV over the NASB. Um, Even though the NASB does a remarkably good job most of the time, why so? Well, in the answer uh, reminiscent of Zero Mostel, Fiddler on the Roof, tradition. You know, before the Reformation, the, church, the church's Bible was the Latin Vulgate. And if we open up our Latin Vulgate and read the text, it says, translated into English, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. But I wonder why the Latin Vulgate does it that way. Well, it's because when we open up our Greek New Testaments, where this text is quoted, the Greek New Testament, translated into English, says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. But I wonder why the New Testament does it that way. Well, that's because if we go back and open up the uh, first translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, that was the Jewish translation into Greek, When we read that translation, translated into English, it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, 
I know we think of the NIV sometimes as this loosey-goosey modern translation, but in reality, it really is tied into this very deep and profound tradition and the English Standard Version uh, as well. I just make that comment because most of you, if you look in the footnote of your Bible, it will give you, with whatever translation is in the text, it will say, or, 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 or. It will give you three or four possibilities for how to translate um, this text. So just a note on that, and I'm going to make a a comment on one other dimension of the translation uh, later on. Uh, So we can safely say that the established translation is the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you'll notice that there's a nice comma between the Lord our God And the Lord is one, which divides this second half of the verse into two parts. And so I'm going to have how many points this morning? Two points. First of all, we want to look at this phrase, the Lord, our God. And then after we do that, we want to look at the corresponding phrase, the Lord is one. So just following the text Uh, Let's look at the Lord, our God. And of course, there are two parts here, right? The Lord and our God. So let me say two things. First of all, let's talk about the significance of that word Lord. Now, you may notice that Lord is in small caps. Can you see that in your translation? Lord is in small caps. And whenever you see Lord in a Bible translation in small caps, it's telling you that the underlying Hebrew is not a word for Lord. It's telling you that the underlying Hebrew is God's personal name. Like, my name is Mark. God had a personal name in the Old Testament. And that name could be represented in English characters with a Y, H, a W, and an H. Y, H, W, H. Well, if that's the case, why does our translation say Lord instead of giving us the Lord's personal name? And the answer for that is found in Fiddler on the Roof, Zero Mostel's word, which is tradition. English translations are following tradition when they do not translate the Lord's personal name and bring it into English, but when they use a substitute for the Lord's personal name, the Lord. But they represent that by putting it in small caps. Now, why this tradition in English? Well, because before the Reformation, the church's Bible was in... Latin. And if we look into the Latin text that the church used for hundreds of years, we do not have God's personal name in Latin. We have the, um, we have the Latin word dominus, which means Lord. But I wonder why the Latin Bible has the word for Lord and not the Lord's personal name. Well, if we go back to the New Testament, which quotes our verse, When we go back to the New Testament, which quotes our verse, we do not find in the New Testament the Lord's personal name. We find the Greek word, which when translated into English means Lord. 
Well, I wonder why the New Testament has the word for Lord and not God's personal name. It's because the writers of the New Testament were all Jewish. And when they opened up their Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they always found in there a Greek word that should be translated into English as Lord. Well, I wonder why the Jews, when they were translating their Bible from Hebrew into Greek, didn't translate the divine name, but they translated with a word, a Greek word meaning Lord. It's because of an even deeper ancient Hebrew tradition. There's a commandment in the Ten. And the commandment says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Now, can somebody tell me one sure-fired way to guarantee that you never misuse God's name? Don't say it at all. Never use it. And so in In ancient Hebrew tradition, before 200 B.C., when the Jews first translated their Bible into into Greek, there was a deep tradition out of reverence for God of never saying his name. Now, ancient Hebrews didn't have Bibles like we do. The only Bible they had, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. But when they would be reciting the Psalms, for example, or when they would be reciting the hero Israel, and they came to the Lord's name, they couldn't say nothing, right? They had to say something. So what did they say in substitution for the Lord's name? They said the Hebrew word Adonai. Now just take a wild guess as to what Adonai means. It means Lord. And that's why when the Jews translated their Bible into Greek, they used the Greek word for Lord. They weren't translating the name. They were translating the substitution. And that's why when the New Testament cites texts that use the Lord's name, they do not use his name. They use the Greek word meaning Lord because they're translating the substitution. In other words, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is following the tradition The New Testament is following the tradition. The Latin Vulgate uses the word dominus, which means Lord, because it's following the tradition. And so our English translations, when they use the word Lord, are following the the tradition. There are a few translations that will translate with Yahweh. Perhaps you've heard Yahweh. Yahweh is a modern scholarly reconstruction of what scholars think the divine name probably sounded like i and a few others have our reasons to think that might not be the case the yah is certainly the case as in hallelujah yah but the way on the end uh, some of us are doubtful the fact of the matter is in his providence for whatever reason god himself has not preserved the pronunciation of his name, what he has preserved through his providence is the tradition of substituting Lord. And hence, when you read your Bible in the Old Testament and you come across Lord with those small caps, you know that behind it is God's personal name, which he has seen fit to give a substitute for, which is Lord. Now, just one other note before we move on. Remember what the Apostle Paul said we must confess about Jesus to be saved. 
You must confess that Jesus is. What did any first century Jew hear in that confession? When you confess that Jesus is Lord, you were confessing that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament scriptures. And so we have this tradition. Now, we haven't said anything at all yet about the meaning. I've only explained why your text looks funny and the Lord is in capital letters. What does the Lord's... Now, let's go and talk about the Lord's personal name. What does his personal name mean? And I would start by saying I wouldn't presume to even begin to think about giving an exhaustive definition of what God's personal name means. Because keep in mind, in the Old Testament, names reflect character. And God's character is infinite. And so how could we possibly think that we could give an exposition, a full exposition of God's name? It's interesting that when Moses first asked God for his name in Exodus 3, which we'll look at momentarily, at the beginning, God didn't give him his name. Remember we talked about Jacob wrestling with the angel when his name was changed from Jacob to Israel? In that wrestling match, Jacob asked the angel a manifestation of God for his name and no name was given. Rather, God said to, to uh, Moses, I am who I am. Moses said, what's your name? And God said, I am who I am, which in a sense is not very helpful. If you were to ask me, Mark, what is a preacher? And I was to say to you, a preacher is a preacher. Not very helpful. God said, I am who I am. Uh, there's a, I have, uh, um, you know, dictionary.com. If you get it set up, they will text you a word for the day. And, and I get the word for the day because I love words. And sometimes I, I look at those words and I say, that's a word that I will never, ever, ever see again or use again. Uh, and sometimes you come across words that you know, and sometimes you come across words that you've heard but you don't know. Here's a wonderful word, ineffable, ineffable. Okay, uh, I grant that ineffable is not a word that we use in the grocery line every day. But it's a great word, and you know, it, it occurs in a number of our hymns. We speak of God being ineffably sublime. We sing of God's ineffable love ineffable it cannot be expressed fully in human speech that's the divine name but having said that while we can't say anything exhaustive about the meaning of God's name there is something that I am convinced I can say that is true of God's name what does God's name mean it means that God, in theological terms, is imminent. Now, we use the word imminent, right? Um, for example, later the there, there is a... Now we're, now the, I love weather, by the way. When I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is turn on the weather channel. 
Stephanie Abrams is one of my heroes. You know, she's a Floridian. She's from Miami. She loves humidity. Um, but now we're not only tracking tropical storms, we're now tracking subtropical storms. And there's a subtropical storm whose arrival is imminent. What's that mean? It's soon. But we use imminent another way. Not only close in time, we also use the word imminent in terms of close in space. And that's what the Lord's name means. He is imminent. Not that he's coming soon, but that he is close to you in space. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we read of God revealing his name to Moses. And it says in Exodus 3, Verse 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And that is ever so closely related in terms of Hebrew to the divine name. What does it mean when God says, I am who I am? Well, if you let your eye run just a few verses earlier to verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. Now, remember the rabbi who said reading your Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through the veil. Every time you translate, there's a little bit lost. There's a little bit added. We can adequately translate the word of God so that we get it. But sometimes a few things are missing. And if I were king of translations... I would not have translated verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. I would translate it this way. But he said, I am with you. Remember in our verse where it says, I am who I am. Here's your Hebrew lesson for the morning. Are you ready? Everybody say just two syllables. Everybody say, eh, yeah. Eh, yeah means I am. Eh, yeah, asher, eh, yeah. I am who I am. Everybody again, eh, yeah. Well, when we go back to verse 12, God said, eh, yeah, imach, I am with you. That's explaining to us what the divine name means. I am means I am with you. I am close. I am imminent. If you go over to chapter 4 and verse 10. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10. And this is the, I'm, I usually preach out of the NIV, but I chose the um, ESV because in this text in particular, it makes the point. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? 
Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and eh, yeah. I will be with your mouth. Now the NIV tells us what that means. I will help you speak. But the, NI, the, NI, the ESV captures this connection. Uh, eh, yeah. I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. Keep reading. But he said, O Lord, my God, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And eh, yeah, I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. I will be with. What does the divine name mean? I am. I am what? I am with you. Now, there's a a slight difference between I am with you and the Lord's name. And it would be reduced to this. And it makes sense. When the Lord is, is speaking, he says, I am. But when we are speaking of the Lord, we can't say what? We can't say I am. What do we say? He is, and there is the meaning of the divine name. He is. He is what? Fill in the blank. He is with us. He is close to us. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 7. A wonderful uh, verse. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 7. Moses speaking to the nation Israel says... For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God? When Glenn was praying this morning, uh, he was praying about things that we can easily take for granted. This is one of them. When you study world religion, one thing that is not typical of world religion is for deity to be close to humanity. And when God reveals his name, he counters that trend that is so pervasive in the religions of the world that deity is way out there and unrelated and unconcerned. What nation is there? That has a God that is so near as the Lord our God. The Lord, small caps, is a substitution for the divine name. And God having revealed to you who you are as Israel, then reveals something of himself to you and the first thing he says to you is I am the Lord I am I am with you I am near you I do not know what this week holds for me I'm guessing some tears my baby's graduating from high school you don't know what this week holds but I do know one thing 
in all of the joys, in all of the sorrows, in all of the tragedies, in all of the triumphs, one thing I know is the Lord. He is with you. Wherever you go, whatever you experience, the ups, the downs, the first thing He tells you about Himself is how He loves and pledges Himself to be with you. No wonder we're more than conquerors. No wonder we are who we are as Israel. It's because of who He is as the Lord of the covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. He is with us. And so we are more than conquerors. And of course in John 8.58, Jesus, who is the Lord incarnate, says before Abraham was, I am. So, let's go back to our text, to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Having reflected on the Lord, let's look at that other side, our God. What does God reveal to us by saying that He is our God? Here is the opposite side. Here is the transcendence of God. The Lord is His imminence, His closeness. The, trans, the, 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 the use of God is His transcendence, the fact that He is far beyond. It's the language of Isaiah. His, his ways are not what? Our ways. His thoughts are not what? Our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth. And, the, the, and Isaiah really didn't have a clue as to just how high the heavens. He didn't understand 14 billion light years. Of course, we don't either. But at least we can say it. We can't comprehend it. But that's the point. Incomprehensible. Not only is God ineffable, He's incomprehensible because He is infinite. He is transcendent. Here's your second Hebrew word. And it's one that you've probably heard. Elohim. Everybody say Elohim. Elohim is the word that is used here for God. It's interesting that when we turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it does not say in the beginning the Lord created, does it? What does it say? In the beginning Elohim created. God created, because in Genesis chapter 1, that first creation story, we have this vast universe being created. We have this transcendent picture of God who is above all, just speaking a word. The Lord said, let there be light, and what happened? There was light. He speaks this vast creation into existence. That's transcendence. The human being is a majestic creature. Able to do so much, we cannot speak universes into existence. Reminds me, I was in California a couple of weeks ago and I had the opportunity to catch up with a dear friend of mine whom I rarely see. One time years ago, we were at the um, aquarium, the Scripps Aquarium in La Jolla. Standing in front of this large aquarium of jellyfish. And I remember making the mistake of saying to Don, what a simple creature. His response was, you try to make one. (laughs) That's transcendence. Goes beyond anything that we can think 
or imagine. It's why Ezra and Nehemiah repeatedly refer to God as the God of heaven. Because he transcends. He goes beyond. That's why in John chapter 8 and verse 23, Jesus, who is the Lord incarnate, not only said before Abraham was, I am, but he also said, I am from above. Do you see how Jesus is the perfect harmony of the imminence and the transcendence of God? Jesus is, I am. He is ever so close to us, but he reminds us that he is, I am from above, far beyond anything that we can think or imagine. I am, imminence, from above, transcendence. The God who is so far beyond us, wanted so much to be with us, that He took on human flesh. How close is that? You can't get any closer to us than Jesus. He took on human flesh to obey every one of the laws of God for us. If in God's will I come back and we get to chapter uh, uh, 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, He did for us. So that when the Father looks at us as those who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, He sees people who love Him perfectly with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our strength. Jesus kept the law for us. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for the times when we have failed to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. He rose from the dead so as the Apostle Paul says we can be justified and have a right relationship with God. He ascended to the Father's right hand so that He could pour out the Holy Spirit into our hearts. How close is that? Near. What nation is there that has a God so near to them? In Him we live and move and have our being, says the Apostle Paul. He ascended not only to pour out His Spirit, but to pray for you daily, hourly, momently, secondly. I'm making up words here. But you get the point. And He's coming again for you so that you might ever live in His presence. The Lord, our God. Ever so close, so far above us, we can't even truly imagine Him. And the two come together perfectly in Christ. Well, we have a, um, another point to make. And that point is, the Lord is one. And I forget, help me, what time do we usually stop? About quarter till? If I'm done preaching at quarter till, is that okay? You'll bear with me a little bit. Uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm debating right now in my mind whether or not to make this next point my next sermon. But um, how about if we do maybe like a Cliff's Notes version and come back to verse 5. Uh, the next time, Lord willing. The Lord is one. You might notice that some of your translations say the Lord alone. If you look in your footnote, you're going to find that as an option. This text is actually, the Lord is one. It's actually ambiguous. 
For example, the lifeguard saw the boy with the binoculars. Who has the binoculars? Maybe. Or it's either the lifeguard saw the boy because the lifeguard was using the binoculars or the lifeguard saw the boy who was carrying the binoculars. It's ambiguous. It could mean either one of those. And this text is something like that, only it's an intentional ambiguity. When the text says the Lord is one, it's talking about two things. Exclusivity of relationship. Integrity of character. Let's look at that first one briefly. Exclusivity of relationship. When it says the Lord is one, the, Lord, the, the text is reminding us that our relationship with God is like a marriage. And a marriage is made up of two, not three or four or five, according to God's ideal. Marriage is the only human relationship that is truly exclusive. It's the only relationship that does not tolerate a third. And God uses the marriage relationship to express his relationship with his people. It's an exclusive relationship. Deuteronomy chapter 6 follows Deuteronomy chapter 5. I may not be able to help my daughter with math anymore, but I do know that 6 comes after 5. I quit being able to help her about 6th grade, I think. Deuteronomy chapter 5 contains the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have first commandment, no other gods. What kind of relationship does God require of us? Exclusive relationship. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's the next verse? You shall love the Lord your God with part of your heart, with part of your soul, and with part of your strength. And you can give part of it to another deity. No, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Why? Because God is one and because he requires an exclusive relationship with his people. In the following verses after the Shema that we have read, you'll get repeatedly, not only in this chapter, but throughout the book of Deuteronomy, no other gods, no other gods, no other gods, no other gods. Why did Israel eventually end up going into the Babylonian captivity? Because they took on other gods. They violated this most fundamental teaching of covenant. I will be your exclusive God and you will be my exclusive people. Exclusivity of relationship. And this is why we can cheer for those of you who are carrying your NASBs this morning or if you're carrying a New Living Translation, because your translation says the Lord alone. And that hits this nail right on the head. The Lord our God. The Lord alone. Exclusivity of relationship. And Lord willing, in the fall when I come back, we're going to talk more about that when we look at love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The second side of that coin is not only exclusivity of relationship, but also integrity of character. Not in this church, but in other churches that you used to attend. You knew somebody who was one way in church, 
and a different way on the golf course. Yes? You knew somebody who was one way at the prayer breakfast and another way in the office. You knew somebody who was one way coming into the doors of the church and another way 15 minutes before with the kids on the way to church. Yes? You don't know anybody like that in this church. And you have never been anything like that, I am sure. But you know those others. We call that a lack of integrity. And God has none of that. The Lord is one. And this had to be said in the ancient Israelite context. There were other gods. For example, the chief god of the Canaanites was Baal. And you have a Baal of Peor. You have a Baal of Hermon. Baals of different places. And if you went to worship these Baals in different places, you might not encounter the exact same deity because Baal was not one. He was not the same wherever you encountered him. But the God of Israel is one. He has integrity. He is one in moral character. He doesn't say adultery is okay to this group and adultery is not okay to this group. Because what he says about morality comes out of who he is and he is one. He is one in divine purpose. His purposes never change. We vacillate. We change. We start. We abort. We go a different direction. But he has been on the same tack since before the foundation of the world. One in moral character. One in divine purpose. That's somebody that you can go to the bank on. That's somebody that in the coming week you can utterly rely on. Because He will be the same. What does the New Testament say? Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord is one. And because God is one, we must be one. Because God is divided, we must not be divided in our loyalties. Now that doesn't mean that we're not loyal to husband, to wife, to children, to church. But our ultimate loyalty must be an exclusive loyalty to the God who is one. Now, the Bible has a lot more to say on that. And in fact, the Bible starts to talk about that immediately when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And as some of your home groups are about to go on hiatus and not pick back up until the fall, this sermon series is now going on hiatus and not going to be picked back up until the fall. And Lord willing, uh, you come back, I'll come back, I forget when, but it's scheduled for sometime in September. And uh, we're going to pick up and look at that next verse, the Lord, uh, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. But for the time being, it is sufficient uh, for those of you who have ears to hear, to hear what the Spirit says. Listen, Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Amen.